Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from Latrobe University. The rise of religious conservatism in Indonesia has received a lot of attention in recent years, not least on this podcast here, where we have discussed many facets of this trend. Among the most widely discussed manifestations of the growing influence of Islamism and conservative Islam was the mass mobilization against former Jakarta governor Basuki Cahaya Purnama, then better known as Ahok, back in 2016 and 2017, which eventually resulted in electoral defeat and a conviction for blasphemy for the ethnic Chinese Christian politician. What was particularly striking about these protests was that they were led by radical preachers like Habib Rizik or Bahtia Nasir, rather than politicians. How did Islamic preachers become so influential that they can mobilize such huge crowds to flood the streets of Jakarta? How do these radical preachers fit into the broader community of Islamic preachers in Indonesia more widely? And what should we make of recent government initiatives to introduce state regulation and certification for preachers? Joining me today to discuss these and other questions is Professor Julian Milley from Monash University here in Melbourne. Julian is a professor of Indonesian studies with a long-standing interest in preaching and religious practices in Indonesia and together with two colleagues from UIN Bandung, Dede Sharif and Moh Fakru Roji, he has just written a policy paper for the Center for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society, CHILIS, entitled Islamic Preaching and State Regulation in Indonesia. And I believe that paper should be available from the CHILIS website by the time this podcast goes online. So, Julian, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you very much, Dirk. It's wonderful to be here. Okay, let's get started. Um, and maybe we start actually by going back to 2016. I mentioned in the introduction the mobilization against AHOC. These protests were spearheaded in many ways by religious preachers rather than politicians, despite the political dimension. And of course, funding came from politicians, etc. And some did join the demonstrations. But yeah, the prominence of... Habib Rizik in these protests, other religious organizations, was quite striking. So I think for many more casual observers of Indonesia, that was perhaps the first time that they realized how influential preachers apparently are. But for someone like you who's been working on this for a long time, yeah. did this come as a surprise as well? The mass mobilization side of it was really surprising, that this kind of political strategy could happen with the intentions that it had and the effects it ended up having was really dramatic and really surprising, I thought. But I also think that perhaps there's a there might be danger that we can overrate the importance of the preachers to the event. In one sense, I think they were very important in that a lot of the people who were mobilised to participate in the rally understood this as an event with which had some religious meanings. Hmm. Yeah, it was part of, it was the Ummat Islam uh, making a political statement. And in that sense, preachers become very important because they're the figureheads you need. I mean, these are, these are the symbolic figures that must really be on the stage. But at the same time, there are reasons for us to think, well, maybe the, the role of 
preaches in a substantive way in terms of the political effects might not have been so strong. For example, I don't think all the people that are there are mobilised behind the persona and the profiles of these individual preachers. Rather, they're mobilised by groups whom they relate to and who they understand from their home environments. And the individual identity of the preachers might not be so important to those kind of people. They mightn't even really know who they are or worry about that. At the same time, if you think about the main sort of enabling figures behind in a political sense, I don't think that you could say that preachers were were playing that role in the sense. What enabled this mobilisation to happen, all the kind of coordination of all the elements, including the state security forces, including political players, a political coalition that was really influential in the whole thing, They need the preachers in a symbolic sense. So the organisations are really important. The coalition is really important. And the political circumstances that enable that are really important. For those reasons, I'm thinking, oh, maybe the preachers are not individually so such a significant part of the whole of the whole mix. Yeah, and it's, it seems that often, even though there's a vast spectrum of preachers, of course, in Indonesia with um, different degrees of liberal attitude to the extremely conservative and even radical uh, mm end of the spectrum. And it seems as if those preachers often dominate the headlines and therefore mm. a lot more people are familiar with Habib Rizik or Bahtia Nasir rather than some of the more moderate or even liberal preachers. And when I was reading your paper, you are engaging with this kind of differentiation with the preachers and you were using an interesting term. Um, you, you described them as counter-public preachers. Mm. What do you mean by that? What, yeah. what is a counter-public preacher and what is the opposite of that? <laughs> Yeah, look, it's a bit of a kind of technical term, but it's not it's not all that difficult to understand because we because this is something that's universal, the idea of, of a religious counterpublic. So all religious movements really have the capacity within them to take a position of resistance, all right? So for example, we live in a liberal society, uh, and tolerance and sort of pluralism are very important principles, I think, of, of mm. that, that you and I would share about how to live in this society. But we have a lot of religious groups as well. And generally, the religious groups share in, that, in, in those principles, and it's in their interest to do so. But all religions, too, have parts within them which say, well, well, if you look at our teachings, in fact, we are obliged to take a resistant position in this way. So a classic example might be the existence of religious groups that say, well, if you look at our teachings... We can't really support liberalism or pluralism as public ideals. Our group benefits from those ideals because we exist in a liberal society and we take advantage of tolerance and and the the principle of pluralism, but we don't actually agree with it. Now, this is not confined to any one religion. It's it's found, I would think, in in all religions. You talk about the spectrum of positions that that religious people take. So that part of of the, the religion which says, well, okay, we live here in this public, but we don't share the commitment to the principles of that publicness. We could call that a counter-public. And it can manifest in quite a lot of ways in Indonesia. For example, the question of greeting people of other faiths around the time of their feast days, for example, mm. Christmas. Yeah. So it's a, it's a perennial question. Should, can Muslims, or are they allowed to, or should they, say, Happy Christmas or Happy Easter to their Christian neighbours, for example. Now, most of the Muslims that I know in Indonesia, both specialists and ordinary Muslims, would say, yeah. (laughs) And I receive so many of these kind of greetings from Indonesians all the time. And in fact, if you look at the uh, website of the Indonesian Ministry of Religion right now, Mm. it has a big Happy Christmas and Happy New Year kind of message 
Mm-hmm. on it. But that is still a question that comes up all the time. And there are teachers and authorities who will answer, well, if you look at the the interpretation I give based on looking at the Islamic sources is that no, you shouldn't mm. do that. Mm. Now, that would typically be a counter-public position. Why? Because, well, most Indonesians do support those public principles of pluralism and tolerance. Mm. So that's why they make that interpretation. A counter-public position would say, no, nah, no, mm. you, sh- you, shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. And that is a, a good example. The term counter-public is a useful one because, of course, it's a perennial part of religious practice that we're going to encounter anywhere. And some of Indonesia's most prominent preachers, historically and in the present, have pushed counter-public positions. As I said, for casual observers, this is often the kind of preachers that we encounter, right? Mm. But there are many, many others. I was wondering, is there because you've encountered many preachers mm. throughout mm. your research, is there sort of a, a standard yeah. stereotypical profile of the ordinary community preacher? I was wondering in particular, is there any diversity in terms of educational backgrounds? How many female preachers do we have? Yeah. Um, it's so dominated by the Habib Rizik's and the Felix Yao's, although yeah. Felix Yao is also a special case because he's... Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you could just give us yeah. a bit of an idea of, you know, what's the... What's sure. The profile of the preacher community in Indonesia. Well, th- this is a great question because honestly, one way of answering it, Dirk, is to say that if you could somehow arrange all the cultural diversity of Indonesian Muslims, mm. then there are preachers to match all of that cultural <laughs> diversity. So, for example, you know, child preachers are really popular, not only on television, but also in. Uh, okay, sorry. Let me go back then. I think the basic, for me, the the best way to get a, an idea of what Indonesian preaching is in Islam is about is to talk about the Islamic calendar. Uh-huh. Okay, and the way that the Islamic calendar provides for Muslims a, a cycle of practices. Okay. So the fasting month is probably the one that's most well known because it, it, it requires people to fast. Hmm. But every night of the fasting month in a lot of villages, there are special prayer sessions held in communities and a lot of people will attend all of them. Mm-hmm. And preachers are always in demand for leading ritual and giving sermons at those events. Mm-hmm. The end of the fasting month, of course, as you know, has these big, this big kind of ritual and, and celebratory um, activity. Mm-hmm. Preachers are massively involved in that. Another part of the cycle is the Friday congregational sermon. Mm. Then there's the pilgrimage time, the specific time on that calendar that the Hajj takes place. There's a lot of preaching activity that goes around the Hajj. So when people leave to go on Hajj, an event will be held. A preacher has to be there to give a little give a little advice or sermon there. When people come back, there's another ritual. The preacher is called to that. Hmm. People have pangajian, which are like study sessions, very popular amongst women on routine schedules. Preachers are in high demand for them. So I think that the sort of cycles of Islamic life, preachers are very important in providing text, and providing a focal point for those kind of gatherings and teachings as well. Hmm. But then there's a huge variety of what people are accepting. So, so um, as I told you, man, child preachers are very popular, particularly amongst women. So typically someone in that community, in the mosque community or in, or in the, the actual residential community will say, well, look, I know someone who knows someone who's heard a child preacher. I can find them out and they'll, they'll end up 
calling sometimes a kind of broker who might have a little school where they prepare children to be preachers. Mm-hmm. And then um, they will book book the preacher, might come out for a special event, and a child will preach. And people, to, people to what age it. group are we talking there? It could be four to... or five. Really? Up to, you know, yeah, up to teenage time. But once you've lost that cuteness, your value <laughs> kind of drops off because they love that cuteness. Yeah. Uh, to have a, a five-year-old copying a, an Islamic preacher dressed in kind of stereotypically ab- Arabic clothing is huge fun, you know. So th- this is kind of populist an example. And then there's the preachers who used to be rock stars or preachers who used to be criminals or preachers who are Chinese and have become Muslim. So that diversity and that novelty is mm. really popular because otherwise those cycles I'm talking about can get repetitive. Yeah. And who's going to keep coming to every night of the fasting month when it's something dull and repetitive. Mm. But if there's new stuff and, and someone who's clever or who can play a musical instrument or who can tell jokes and so forth, mimic, those kind of things are in demand mm. for the everyday routines. So that's more, I think that the reality of preaching that most Indonesian Muslims would know is closer to that. The, repeti- the repetitive nature of, of Islamic obligation made pleasant by someone who's a, a, a clever speaker or a refreshing yeah. speaker. To me, that's that's the... Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm talking about it in a kind of... as if it's an enjoyable thing. But, of course, it's also interpreted as Islamic obligation, something mm. very serious. You're fulfilling your religious obligations by attending these kind of events. And the words of the preacher mm. are, you know, the words of the Qur'an and the Hadith, and, that's, and the, the preacher has knowledge about these things, can translate them and give them, interpret them so that they're value for everyday life. That's the reality of preaching, I think, that is known to most, to most mm. Muslims. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure if this was the dominant perception everywhere, if we didn't have these counter-public preachers mm. as well, then hardly anyone would be concerned about the role of preachers in society, right? Exactly. Because there they fulfill, you know, mm. a really important function for community, right? But what we have seen in recent years is a sort of dominance of the counter-public preachers, at least in public discourse. They're mm. the ones who are imposing themselves on the public perception. And so we can clearly see that the government seems to fear almost like during the Sohato years that political Islam yeah. can become the major threat through its own yeah. interests, right? Yeah. So I want to talk about the various measures that the government has taken in order to try to contain the growing influence of these counter-public mm. preachers. It seems that clearly certain segments of the Islamic community are now being targeted. Uh, we've seen, for example, this um, cross-ministerial decree that is uh, aimed at making bureaucrats you know, more committed to the Panchasila and mm. root out radicalism in the bureaucracy. Mm. But if we try to bring it back now to the preachers in particular, there have also been the kind of bureaucratic efforts to make preachers acceptable to what apparently the standards of the Ministry of Religious Affairs, for example, should be. Yeah. So I think it was a couple of years ago where they published a list mm. of preachers whom the government apparently deemed acceptable. Yeah. I assume that you follow that list. Maybe can give us a, a bit of an insight of how this was perceived within the you know the community of preachers, the Islamic community, the, the various groups that are there. Was this seen as an attempt by the government to basically regulate religious practice in line with what they think religious practice should be like? Yeah, look, the list was put out and the heading for the list was literally list of names of Indonesian 
Islamic preachers. That that was the name. <laughs> As on, if these I, are all there are, right? Yeah, exactly. 200, so you it. had 200 names. <laughs> and yes, certainly the, the minister did give the criteria by which these names came to be included on the list. And they were, first, sufficient competency in Islamic sciences. Okay. Secondly, a good reputation. And thirdly, a high commitment to Indonesian nationalism. So it's very clear what the sort of orientation of the list was. So it is towards those preachers who support, for example, the, the, the Panchasila ideal and so forth. And it probably does support the Nahdlatul Ulama in, in many ways because of that historical kind of uh, support that the Nahdlatul Ulama has given to the idea of a Panchasila. Mm. And how was it accepted at the time? It created a minor furor at the mm-hmm. time okay. for a number of reasons. One is because some of the preachers who were on the list felt that they had been singled out above colleagues who should have also been on the list. Huh. So therefore, it looked like a negative reflection on other preachers. Do you see what I mean? And they felt mm-hmm. it's not right for the government to go and making these kind of distinctions. Mm. Uh, it's harmful. It's what the Suharto government used to do. So they said, well, look, you know, by putting me on the list and not other people, they're starting to make those kind of distinctions. And there, there were some other more humorous kind of implications. There was a preacher who was apparently dead on the, <laughs> on the <laughs> whose name found its way onto, onto the um, list. But, yeah, that's what people didn't like was this idea that, okay, we've, we've, have we suddenly got two tiers of preachers here, those that are acceptable and those that are not? Mm. But that died down fairly quickly, yeah. uh, and it doesn't seem as though there's been any, much of a follow-up, to my knowledge, Mm. from from the list. So it looks, in some ways, it kind of has an element of wisdom about it, the approach the government's taking there. If they want to send messages about publicness and so on, they publish a list. It has an effect of communicating some meanings, but beyond that, it has no real effect. Do you see right. what I'm saying? Yeah. So that looks to me like it's a kind of way of a soft touch type of strategy of making statements. And of course, it is controversial, though, because of that orientation of the list to a certain segment of preachers, which is largely representative of Indonesian preachers. I mean, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, it does suggest these two tiers. Yeah, the criteria that you mentioned, the third one about commitment to nationalism, yeah. that seems a very clear message against those who are advocating for a caliphate, right? So, oh, definitely. And they have his yeah. as the most prominent organization who has been doing that. So mm. that falls neatly into line there. Mm. So this was 2018, one year before the election, and you said there hasn't been much follow-up, which is interesting because after 2019, we now have a vice president who used to be the chairman of the Indonesian Ulama Council yeah. and also a prominent member of NU. So it seems as if now mm. the sort of mainstream Nahdlatul Ulama-affiliated Muslim community would be in the driving seat to actually do more, right? Yet, as you said, there has been no follow-up. So is this merely for communicative effect to send a message to the community because there were other measures before, right? You were mm. early on in the podcast we mentioned Habib Brizik, the mm. firebrand preacher from mm. FPE. He's been basically driven out of the country and can't return, right? Mm. Because mm. of charges for mm. pornography that yeah. were yeah. made up against him. Mm. Um, so there are ways to do more. Yet, with regards to preachers, the government just left it at that. And mm. the MOE seems content with that. Well, it's very difficult to say, but it seems to me that one of the realities that we have to think about here is are the political consequences of taking further action hmm. because there are sensitivities about government regulation of religion of Islamic preachers. 
and the the prospect of organised resistance to heavy-handed actions is a political reality that I don't think the government would want to contemplate. So the step of publishing the 200 names, the list of preferred preachers, and also some mentions of the prospect of certification, which came up in 2017, although this is this goes back a, a long way, that the Ministry of Religious Affairs suggesting that it would be good to have a certification system for mm. Islamic preachers. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of things seem to bubble along without going much further than being to, you know, uh, items to be discussed right. or, or plans that might be moved along in the future. And I think the, one of the reasons for that is because of the prospect of igniting a political, political repercussions. Hmm. So, yeah, my feeling is it will probably continue along in that way in the, in the near future. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. What's your sense about hmm. that? Yeah, it seems as if the government currently is pursuing other strategies. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I was wondering also, I don't know how seriously they are worried about individuals. Like mm. with Habib Rizik, for example, it seems that they were wor- very worried about this mm. one individual and they took mm. action to take him out of the equation, right? Mm. So having names now on the list yep. and having other names specifically not on the list yep. would perhaps provide an avenue if they wanted to go after certain individuals, then they could use this list, say, oh, you're not fulfilling this criteria. Mm. And mm. this is where the certification comes in, right? Mm. You're not fulfilling the criteria, therefore you can't be certified and therefore you yeah. can't yeah. Um, preach anymore, right? Yeah. Can I just mention two more points on the Habib Rizik and the certification one? Mm. Is that firstly, Habib Rizik in a way was, is a very exceptional case because of his record. Mm. I mean, he's got a long record because he's been inflammatory. For hmm. example, he made some comments in a sermon in, in West Java where he made fun of there's this, there's this greeting that Sundanese people use, Sampur Asun, okay, hmm. which, is a, um, which is a Sundanese greeting. And sometimes it's Sundanese nationalists who use this greeting explicitly as a replacement for Assalamu Alaikum. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's a bit, it's, it can be a little bit sensitive now, but, but a lot of other people use it just hmm. in their day-to-day, you know, uh, without that level of reflection. So it's a very commonly used thing, and it's Sundanese language. He made a joke in a sermon saying, look, these people going using champurachun as a greeting. Hmm. Champurachun, of course, which means mixing poison, mixed with poison, something like that. Hmm. In Uh, Indonesian, not in Sundanese, right? He was was preaching in Indonesian. But that was filmed and then uploaded. Hmm. Oh, created a terrible... Terrible reaction from a lot of Sundanese people, especially the Sundanese cultural groups, and they can be very radical on their responses to these kind of threats. Mm. So he had a kind of a record, I think, that reduces the level of public sympathy for for him. He's an exceptional person in that regard. Mm. A second point, I think, Dirk, about the certification process is that Indonesia has really had a distinctive public political Islam nexus that really distinguishes it from neighboring countries like Malaysia and and Brunei. So, for example, in Malaysia, they have a strict certification system run the state level, which means, yeah, you can't preach unless you have a unless you're certified. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. The Friday in Brunei, the same thing, and Friday sermons are all written from a central authority and mm. circulated. Now, it's really difficult to see those kind of things hmm. being legislated in, in Indonesia. For one thing, in contrast to Malaysia, in Indonesia, the governments, elected governments, have never really taken the kind of 
overriding leadership role in Islamic interpretation that Malaysian governments have taken mm. because of the ethnopolitics of Malaysia. Mm. Governments have had a big role in steering Islamic interpretations or, or trying to trying to sort of steer Islamic interpretations in a particular direction. Mm. Whereas in Indonesia, there hasn't been that level of oversight or regulation or steering by any governments. Mm. Of course, the Suharto government excluded Muslims from the the political process, but they also exclude a lot of other of players from the political process. So Muhammadiyah and Nahdlatul Ulama contrasting Islamic ideas about how to be a Muslim in the world hmm. have both had these amazing roles in, in Indonesian civil society today, and they're still rivals today. Hmm. The government hasn't said, yeah, we're a Muhammadiyah government or a Nahdlatul Ulama government. So f- for that reason, it's difficult, I think, to see a gut an Indonesian government taking such an overt, an overtly interventionist role in Islamic communication in Indonesia, and I, I personally couldn't, couldn't see it happening. Yeah, even with MUI now, that that would be the one organization that would come to mind because it's been involved in halal certification, for example. Yeah, and that's probably less controversial, right? Because regardless of Natatul Ulama or Muhammadiyah, you could agree yeah. more easily on what's halal and what's not halal, but it's probably a lot more controversial well, what kind of preachers are. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly right. And if the government decided to manage the certification process of preachers through the Ministry of Religious Affairs, they would be involved in choices that it would just be... Uh, th- they couldn't make these choices without encountering fierce resistance, mm-hmm. okay? So... It makes sense that then they would give it to the Majlis Ulama Indonesia to take this role. But even for the Majlis Ulama Indonesia, to have that responsibility could be very divisive within the organization because that organization is also not a homogenous one ideologically. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that the discussions they would have around certification of preachers could potentially be fragmenting for that organization as well. Although, on the other hand, it does look like an opportunity for the Majlis Indonesia to take a greater role in structuring and steering Islamic understandings within the Republic, which conceivably is something that they will be attracted to. But the fragmenting effects of it could be could be quite um, could be severe for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. And because Maruf Amin is so closely affiliated with NU at the mm-hmm. same time, him being vice president now, yeah, that's yeah probably a risky move for them too. Yeah. Yeah. There was a very interesting case that came up just recently. I think it was something like August of last year, where a preacher who probably is Abdul Samad, who's maybe the most high-profile high preacher in Indonesia at the moment, certainly very successful, a video was uploaded that had been taken three years prior to, to the, the uploading. And what it showed was it was in a mosque. He was giving a, a sermon. And, and like a lot of sermons, there was a question and answer session at the end of the sermon. And someone in the audience asked, the Christian symbol of the crucifix is a, is a kind of, it's a creepy thing. Can you tell me about that? And he then gave an explanation of the crucifix, which was very offensive to, mm. to Christians, that there was a jinn satan, a kind of satanic spirit of some kind in, in the cross. And as a response to that, Christians in a number of parts of Indonesia made out their depositions and took them to the, to the local police station and saying, I want to make a complaint. We have laws about blasphemy in this country. We have laws about misrepresenting religious teachings. And a lot of people have been imprisoned according to those laws. We think this is such a case. Here's our deposition. Please deal with it. Hmm. Now, it would be politically too sensitive for a prosecution of that man to take place for a number of reasons. One is because he could, he in fact said at a public event held after that, 
in the Majlis Ulama Indonesia office. He said, look, I'm just, this is a private lesson, he said, that I was giving in a mosque where I frequently preach and it wasn't for general public, wasn't for circulation for the general public. And furthermore, uh, you can't stop these because we make statements that are true according to our creeds. Mm -hmm. They might be offensive publicly, but according to our creedal convictions, Akida, these are these are true statements. So how can you possibly say, how can you possibly say uh, that? How can you possibly say that I should be prosecuted for this, or that I should apologise? In fact, that was that was the question. Should he apologise? He he refused mm -hmm. to apologise. Now, the point is a very important one, because really, I think most people would agree. Yet, religious groups in their private meetings, well, they they can't. You know, they're not making statements to the world. They're not making public statements. That's mm -hmm. one way of looking at it. So in that sense, that can't be, you can't possibly uh, restrain that. You can't restrict that and you can't regulate that. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be regulated mm -hmm. because it's, a, you know, it, it's about freedom of religion. Of course, the other side of it is that there surely is a public ethic at stake here. Mm -hmm. Living in a plural community where religious groups are required to live together, that's the Indonesian way of doing things. That's always been the Indonesian way of doing things. So the refusal to apologize actually came over, in my, in my opinion fairly arrogantly, yeah. but nevertheless, the point is an important one. And um, so that's one of the points it shows up is this tension between public and private statements. Mm. The other point that it brings up is the social media one, of course, yeah. because um, really that statement wouldn't have come to public attention if it hadn't have been filmed. And, you know, digital technology allows this to happen and things to be uploaded. Mm. So statements that were in fact intended for a restricted private gathering end up being broadcast to the world with disastrous effects. So digital technology and the online, the capabilities of online technology, I think have really, mm -hmm. they're really making changes to the way preachers will go about their business. And that's not the only example. There are other examples of preachers having their statements circulated in ways that if they knew that was going to happen, they wouldn't have made that mm. statement. Yeah. Mm. Yet at the same time, many preachers these days are using the technology to their own benefit very, you know, yeah. strategically and are very savvy in using social media. That's right. Now, this preacher wasn't one of those people. <laughs> he's not one of those people. Right. Abdul Samad has always been a really kind of, how shall I say, very mainstream, very pious, but he's always been a preacher who hasn't been one of those ones that sort of... Uh, sort of, you know, wanted to, to push moral panics, for example. That hasn't been really his 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 uh, his business. So that's mm. that's what made this even even more controversy in a way. Because you're right, some preachers make it part of their program. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, great. Thanks so much, Julian. That's a real pleasure to come in. Thanks very much, too. Excellent. So, yes, that was Professor Julian Milley from Monash University speaking with Dirk Tomza on the Talking Indonesia podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please join us again for the next one on the 27th of February. Finally, as ever, don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and until next time.